Welcome to the regular podcast from Editorial Intelligence, the media analysis and networking business. You can see all our broadcast interviews on our EITV channel on YouTube and editorialintelligence.com. My name is Bridget Kendall. I'm BBC diplomatic correspondent and also host a program called The Forum on the BBC World Service. Um, I'm your chair this evening and it gives me very great pleasure to uh, welcome you all and to thank Her Excellency, the Ambassador of Sweden, for hosting us in this most beautiful residency, and also to Editorial Intelligence for organising this event, the latest in their series of panels aimed at stimulating interesting discussions on a range of topical issues. And tonight's subject is digital diplomacy. And in an age when new digital technology is transforming not just communications, but also patterns and networks of power, dismantling boundaries not just geographic, but political. It's a really interesting question. How should the world's diplomats react to this change? Of course, many of them are reacting already. Uh, But what does it mean for them? Is this a wonderful new tool to reach audiences hitherto impossible to get at and dispel that myth that what diplomats mostly do is swill champagne at endless cocktail parties out of touch with ordinary people? Does it help get diplomats out of the trap of talking just to each other and mapping their days by meetings and minutes and let them get a better feel of what really exercises the public, whether in their own country or the place that they're posted? Or are diplomats, in embracing digital technology, also embracing dangers of alienating those who don't have access to Twitter or iPads or too easily letting slip indiscretions? Don't we love all those? or of raising expectations of open debate in realms which actually are better left to private discussions, or an increasing worry, I suspect, of making themselves a target for cyber attacks, as happened to the Estonian government some years ago. I don't know if there's anyone from the Estonian embassy here, but that was certainly something which caught the headlines. Well, to kick off this evening's event, I'm delighted to be joined by four eminent panellists, Her Excellency, Miss Nicola Klaas, who's our hostess and ambassador of the Swedish Embassy in London. She's held previous postings here in London and in Denmark and been State Secretary for Foreign and European Affairs in the Swedish Prime Minister's office. Next to her from the British Council, John Warne, who's Director of Corporate HQ, responsible for the British Council's strategy and brand and governance. And John, I believe before the British Council, you worked in the Cabinet Office, Mm -hmm. the Department of Health, helping brand the National Health Service. Must have been very pleased with the opening of the Olympics. Indeed. Uh, And worked around the world in the telecommunications industry. On my left, for a global perspective, very different perspective, we've got Mark Turrell, who's joining us. He's a young global leader and a former technology pioneer with the World Economic Forum. He's also founder of the strategy firm, is it Orasky? Orcasite. Orcasi, I, I thought it might be Italian, Orashi, I thought it was, okay, which combines different sciences to explore how ideas, behaviours and companies can spread, both digitally and really. Um, finally, for a, a view from our very own foreign office, uh, the FCO's Director of Strategy, Alex, Alex Ellis, and until 2010, Alex was mm. British Ambassador in Portugal, so he knows what it's like to be an ambassador in post dealing with the digital world. He's also worked in Madrid and Brussels, where he's worked both for the UK mission and as advisor to the European Commission president. 
Now, I'm going to ask them all to say a few words each to get us going. But just before that, I thought it'd just be interesting to just have... Let's have a vote, see what the mood in the hall is. The question being, does digital technology, do you think, make the work of diplomats easier or more difficult? So, hands up those who think it makes their work easier. Okay. I don't know what that would be, about half. Hands up those who think it makes their work more difficult. Hmm, over half. Yeah, well, about half and a half. Half and over half. Well, let's see what we we come up with uh, this evening, whether those might change or not. Can I start with you, Ambassador? Nicola Klaas, your opening remarks. Well, the other day, my... uh... My older son asked me, Mother, what did you do before you had cell phones? Made me sort of feel like I was raised in the Stone Age. But it was sort of a good way of me sort of thinking also about what did we do in diplomacy before internet and social media? And I think it's important when we when you talk about this that we acknowledge that the first revolution was the internet. The second revolution was the social media when we could actually publish back. And I think that no thoughtful person today can ignore the worldwide explosion that we see uh, in development in this field. And also the change in culture that diplomats now have to face. Everything moves so much faster. And if you look at the amount of Internet users uh, 12 years ago, there were a few hundred millions. Last year, it was 2.3 billion. That's what we're sort of uh, up against. 90% of the Swedes are online, 50% are on Facebook. And uh, we're probably just at the very beginning, and I think there's very much more to come. So what, where does that leave us um, diplomats? Well, I think we need to ask ourselves, what was important before this and what's important now? I would say that today it's less about the long telegram. It's um, modern diplomacy, digital diplomacy being sort of on the ground, providing information online, good services online, acting in real time. Um, foreign ministries today have to be really fast learners to stay relevant in this very busy and uh, competitive marketplace. But we can only understand this culture of two-way internet if we are part of it. And I think that's why um, when we uh, look at our diplomatic agendas that we need to understand that we have to focus on less traditional players. And the advantages of social media to us working abroad are are very clear. It's inexpensive, overcomes long-standing problems of distance and time zones. It's a very good way of using soft power and also an excellent early warning system Uh, and also a good way of correcting uh, misinformation quickly. But I think the one thing that we need to acknowledge is that there's a very high level of trust at stake here. So you have to remember that. Uh, You cannot misuse this tool because if there's a lack of trust, you will not succeed uh, at all. Sweden has come a very long way since the former Prime Minister Carl Bildt sent the first email to President Clinton back in the early 90s. Uh, This was a a big to-do at the time. And uh, Carl Bildt, um, later on, has um, continued pioneering and started a blog in 2005, actually got quite criticised for it, uh, especially once he became foreign minister. Today, no one thinks about it. It's a very natural thing for him to have that blog, and it's very appreciated. He was um, an early avatar in the world of Second Life and inaugurated... <laughs> a virtual 3D embassy in cyberspace in 2007 
And at that time, he said that he had no idea about where we were going to be in five to ten years, but he concluded that it was not his first nor his last visit to Second Life. Today, he has some 150,000 followers on Twitter, and he's a rather big master at conducting foreign policy in 140 characters. He knows how to distill messages to its very essence and also to draw attention to very important issues such as human rights. And an interesting point that he often makes is that during the Arab Spring, he got very frustrated with regular media. Uh, he wanted more information on Tunisia and felt that the one way of getting real-time information was over Twitter. And that was really when he himself uh, got started. Um, he also took it a bit... He took it a step further when he was unable to reach his counterpart in Bahrain by a traditional means of communication. So then he tweeted, and the tweet to Al Khalifa was, trying to get in touch with you on an issue. It worked. <laughs> but of course there are limitations. Twitter is a tool, it's not an end in itself, it's not a solution. Now, we also have to ask ourselves, will we make mistakes using social media? Yes. We will. It's inevitable. But I think there are times when you then have to tell yourself, move on, and say, how fascinating. Because um, I think in this day and age, if you're a control freak, it's not a very good uh, way of dealing with this. Um, I think the, the, the really good part about social media is that it increases visibility of what's happening in the world. Um, if you look at subjects beginning with E, like economy, energy, environment, epidemics, and so on. What is, it's visible, trackable, and targetable. Um, but there we also see that diplomacy, until recently, was basically re reserved for diplomats. Now, single individuals are empowered by the internet, uh, often organized in groups, are they're affecting international events on an unprecedented scale. Networks challenge hierarchies, they can unsettle regimes. I would say it's a much harder thing to be a dictator today than it was 20 years ago. Um, so, but we also have to remember that traditional diplomacy is very much out there. There's really no, um, nothing that can replace face-to-face -face meetings. Um, when we look at, at citizens using the internet, they can <coughs> protest, but it's not until they're actually physically present that it sort of uh, can make that uh, big change. And we saw that when the Mubarak regime felt in Egypt, it was partly because of the internet, but it wouldn't have happened unless the protesters went to Tahrir Square. I think that internet freedom will be one of the defining issues of this century because we have to focus on the struggle between an open and closed internet. Access, on, access to information and opportunities should not depend on where you live. Internet freedom deserves to be at the very top of our agenda, and I cannot say that clearly enough. Swedish Embassy in London, as a final remark, is a bit of a laboratory where we try to promote a, a culture of learning and curiosity to be as creative as possible. But looking into the future, it's only the future that can disclose what the future is about. Um, but I do think that by exploring the present, that gives us a hint about where we are heading. Thank you. Thank you very much. Mm.
a, a great introduction to getting us going. Uh, let's hear now from John. John Moore. Super. Well, uh, for me, there are three long-term drivers of relationships between uh, the peoples of the world, and I would pick out access to opportunity, access to information, and access to technology. And, of course, they're all completely intertwined. Uh, generally speaking, humans are pretty good at reacting to shocks and events, but rather less good at spotting trends or predicting the future. So I guess one of our challenges here tonight is to think about what's changing and then what stays the same in human relations in the middle distance. So at the British Council, we have a lively group of, uh, of external folk, uh, public policy thinkers, tech thinkers and networking thinkers that we call our provocateurs, who, uh, who are there to challenge us, basically, and give us new ideas for our medium-term strategy. So we posed this question to them, and they came up with three things for us. Uh, the first one was, watch out for tech hubris. So uh, jetpacks and personal hovercraft are less likely than an ongoing need for a sense of connection and authenticity in our lives, which will be helped by, but not replaced, by connected devices. That was their first tip. Their second tip was don't underestimate the lasting impact of symbols, of institutions, and of national moments. So you have very, the recent experience of the Olympics, the royals, our global cultural institutions in this country, the BBC, our universities, museums, and theatres, even the Premier League as, uh, as things which, along with London and uh, the British Council around the world, create a sense of connection, a sense of common ident identity, and an attraction to things UK which go way beyond our borders. And their third point was that um, about the search for meaning, really, that many young people are searching for more meaning in their lives. So you have uh, an increasing take of authentic experiences, live performance, craft, search for quality in, in things, but also many are increasingly nihilistic in their views, ignoring, potentially even hating their own future and real-world demographics and youth unemployment are going to be huge issues here. So, what can governments do about all that in today's world? Well, Mitt Romney says that it's jobs. Obama says it's all about values. Uh, I'm sure they're both right, but I think a big driver of change that is readily available to us is more positive engagement and interest from ordinary people like you and me. So, in the digital age, as you say, Nicola, everyone is a potential citizen diplomat, and that is a huge untapped opportunity. I think the idea of government, authority and diplomacy operating in any kind of protected, moderated or orderly space is probably over. Uh, we had a delegation over from China on Monday to talk about press and social media and it was pretty clear to all of us really that pretty much everyone everywhere can find or see pretty much anything they want to see if they have a smartphone, a tablet or a laptop. So uh, very much more, as you say, of what governments and countries are going to do and how they're going to behave in the future will be influenced by the unruly, uncensored, viral, unforgiving world of always-on media. Uh, and obviously the YouTube riots uh, amply demonstrate that. Uh, the Economist posed the question last week, I think, how long before a tweet starts a war? Uh, I think uh, a number of governments, including the UK's and Sweden's, are adapting very well to these opportunities and challenges. Uh, but I suppose my contribution for this evening would be what can we, the people, do uh, over and above that. And I would say that uh, three things we could look at are, firstly, upping the number of people in this country who travel, who study, and who work overseas, and increase the number, above all, who have languages. Uh, we need to continue to be a welcoming, open country, 
for all who would want to visit us, study here, work here, create art and create content here. Uh, I think it's also important that we keep investing in our world-class presence around the globe, particularly our diplomatic presence, our contribution to international development, sharing English education and UK culture, and indeed the BBC as a national treasure. So, uh, as our provocateurs said to us, uh, beware of predictions of ambassadors jetting in in virtual jetpacks. Still, a lot of what's going to matter to all of us is going to be face-to-face, on the ground, up close and personal, and very much of the real world. Uh, But I do think that uh, people, uh, citizens, can uh, do a lot more to help share and learn together with other peoples and countries. All of the tools are there for us now to take part. And the world is watching, uh, probably as we speak, on Facebook and uh, and YouTube. Thank you. Thank you very much. (laughs) And and I should say, for those of you out there who are e-diplomats or um, aspiring citizen diplomats... The hashtag is EI Network. Uh, okay, let's go on to Mark Turrell. Einstein used to teach undergraduate physics at Princeton University. His second-year students, when they went into the examination hall, would get a big shock, because in front of them would be last year's examination questions. Finally, one of Einstein's students would stand up bravely and say, well, Professor Einstein, you've made a mistake. You seem to have given us last year's questions. Einstein would just smile and say, well... Whilst it's true that I've given you last year's questions, this year, the answers are all different. (laughs) If we're looking at right now, I mean, sort of diplomacy and adding this word digital, right now, to some extent, there's been relatively little change. The same needs exist, the same human beings exist, and yet there is something special with this technology that is dramatically changing everything. Let's look at this in the world of humanity, and to understand humanity properly, let's go inside of our brains into the neurons and synaptic connections, and let's compare human beings, intelligent as we are, with chimpanzees. So relatively speaking, as a sort of number of uh, neurons in our head related to cognitive functioning, we have about the same as our uh, chimpanzee friends. Well, what's interesting, though, is that we can do a lot more. Granted, we're no longer able to paint with our feet depending on how many shots you've done. Um, But we're no longer able to do some things, but right now we've created intelligence. What is interesting when you look at this is that the fundamental difference between a chimp brain and a human being's brain are the number of connections between the neurons. A chimpanzee has about 1,500, 2,000 synaptic connections per neuron. A human being has 16,000 connections. So right now it's the number of connections that allow intelligence to emerge. What is interesting with the technology that we're working at now is that we have dramatically, the exponential doesn't even begin to convey the the message, we have massively increased the number of connections. The ability to, I mean, if something interesting here happened and a picture was taken, this thing is gone out pretty much and 20, 30 million people could see it instantly. That fundamentally, it's almost like a small piece of technology, and I'm a technologist by background. The technology is very small, but what it's done is it's given human beings a massively increased capacity to connect. But when I look at this thing, I go back to um, 1660. So in 1660, there was a crazy Dutch scientist called Anton van Leeuwenhoek, and he was completely start-raving mad. Because he spent 10 years of his life writing scientific papers about how he saw small things moving around in water. And clearly, if you look at water, and even if you really squint, you can't see anything move. Um, Sir Isaac Newton was one of the founders of the Royal Society of London. 
And this group of eminent scientists pretty much had their first ever road trip yay, to Delft to go and visit this crazy Dutch guy at his textile factory. When they got there, they discovered that this man had invented the microscope. The small things had always existed, but we as human beings had lacked the eyes, we had lacked the lens, lacked the technology to see them with. What's very interesting for me um, is that I've really been sort of working on this sort of human microscope to understand sort of this crazy world that we live in, which takes us into the world of complex systems, of networks, of following behavior. And what's very interesting is that almost we need to have a new lens to understand this sort of crazy, abundant, connected world that we live in. There are a set of rules that apply. And then I'll finish my closing remarks by saying I'm also a practitioner. So I am a uh, full-on, I was speaking to a friend of mine, uh, it's called a non-aligned digital diplomatic practitioner. So uh, Libya, Syria, Zimbabwe being involved in things that become headline news as a totally normal person who normally does technology and software, but to actually be involved in these things. And this goes beyond sending out a tweet with a hashtag. This is sort of full-on doing some very interesting stuff. I'm very much looking forward to the talk. Thank you. Thanks. Okay, finally, the view from the Foreign Office. Alex. Well, the view from Alex Ellis, uh, at least. Uh, and thank you very much. Um, I, so I'm, I'm, you know, I'm just a curious, fairly ignorant uh, diplomat, uh, to be honest, um, about the stuff which you all know about. Um, and for sure, you know, so I'm, 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 I can see that the world is changing the way you're describing one of the great trends of, of the next 20 years being the continued diffusion of power away from central authorities. Um, that's also true for democracies as well as autocracies. It's very hard to be an elected government as well as to be a dictator, I think, compared to 20 years ago. You have to work harder for your legitimacy wherever you are. And that's because, in part, of quite large, but I think, because of technology, which, which all you folks know about. Um, so, uh, and it plays into politics very quickly, um, and so it plays into the work of a traditional foreign office, a foreign ministry, very fast. So I look at what happened uh, between China and Japan, what was happening as a result of the, um, uh, the video uh, uh, and the, the reactions to that throughout the Islamic world. And what happens is we have to close some of our embassies, amongst many other things. So private individuals, sometimes private individuals, it ends up, who do you attack? Well, you attack an embassy. We have closed more embassies in the last 18 months than we have in the previous 20 years. Um, it's a really fascinating statistic about how exposed, amongst other things, we are as formal organizations to the consequence of this. In other words, you can't avoid this stuff. You've got to swim in it because it's going to come to you one way or another. Um, so, uh, so we do, and the folks at the Foreign Office who do this fantastically well... Uh, i make one or two observations about it. Firstly, we do it much better abroad than at home. Um, and that's because we're freer abroad. Uh, some ministries don't allow their folks to get to tweet, for example. They say that's not what it is. That's what politicians do. And there is an issue there about responsibility. But I think that, uh, and that plays into a wider debate about what civil servants are responsible and accountable for and to whom, to the ministers, to parliament, and so forth. And that's becoming a you know, bigger and bigger an issue um, uh, there are some security issues. So uh, on my kit, um, I can't see, have access to YouTube, um, which is just so frustrating. But anyway, <laughs> let's, I'll just, just calmly just move on from that. Um, but there's some good security reasons for that. But we don't, our kit uh, it doesn't really work for this stuff, which is uh, frustrating. Um, the... Uh, 
but there are fantastic opportunities. Yeah. Because of, techn- of technological reasons or security reasons? Security reasons, yeah, yeah, no. I mean, you know, it's not that bad. I mean, it's <laughs> bad, but it's, it's, it's for security reasons. Um, and so people vote with their feet, yeah? So our, our diplomats abroad just get, take their own stuff in. They use their own iPads and stuff, and this then drives the security director into sort of the same level of spasms of fury. Uh, and so we have quite a spasmodic uh, debate about this. Um, the, uh, uh, but, you know, lots of stuff goes on. I think it's very situational. I mean, you know, so what you do depends on where you are. Uh, if you're abroad. Um, watching telly is quite a good idea in some countries if you understand what's going on because most other people watch telly. They don't actually uh, do this stuff. So, you know, that helps uh, um, a lot. So you have to be very situational about how you use it, I think, in diplomacy. Um, and we're naturally, as diplomats, frankly, we are better, and this is I'm very probably British diplomats, I'm sure it's not true as Swedish diplomats, we are naturally good, better at transmitting than receiving. And the technology simply shows that. We do like to tell... Uh, we're not brilliant sometimes at listening. So I'm most in- so this is very highly developed abroad. Our embassies do it, our ambassadors do it. All sorts of people are using all sorts of tools. But at home in London, in- if you're doing Iran policy, you are not using this stuff very much. And maybe you don't need to. Maybe that's all right. Um, interesting, some of our embassies are using it for policy. In our embassy in Beijing, for example, all the time, is you know like everyone else in China, is following what's going on as a source of information. In Portugal. Maybe you need it, but you maybe you don't need it quite so much. So, again, it is very situational. It is more home, uh, more abroad than at home. Uh, one thing I think that is a big problem, I think, for our ministry is the change of culture in terms of natural openness. I don't know, you know, we are not a naturally... We go into our building. It's closed in. It's quite hard to get into it. Um, it's quite hard to get out of it in a bizarre way. <laughs> um, and somehow, uh, and I know I'm looking at one of your colleagues or former colleagues, you know, it, it, there's something about it which pulls you in and stops you looking out, and that's not okay. One thing is absolutely clear. And so do, we, are we, do people come into our ministry open and then close up? And how do we change that culture so people just naturally are using this to open up? And it is a great opportunity to do that, I think, through this kit, so long as my laptop will actually accept it. Thank you very much. Thank you. I, I want to come to the floor in just a few minutes, but it's just interesting what Alex has said, uh, throwing up this tension, because we're talking about diplomats, not just ordinary journos or anybody else who might be using this new technology, but specifically diplomats. And there clearly is this tension between reaching the public or learning from the public and negotiating state to state where, you know, you may want to have your cards to your chest or you may be dealing with something very sensitive, negotiating over kidnapping, for example. Yeah, yeah. No, you're not tweeting all the time on that. um, I I just wanted just just to sort of be a bit more concrete here to ask, first of all, um, ask you, Alex, uh, Mark, what is it that you, with this new technology, can change? What's the most dramatic thing that you can tell us that you or people like you through the sort of work you do can change well I think I mean this sort of the most dramatic thing is that instant connection I mean you're transferring information instantly you can get access to almost anything everywhere 
pictures and cameras is another good thing. I mean, pictures carry stories. So right now, these can happen everywhere at every time, as Prince Harry found out in his stag night. Um, but I was talking about you specifically, because <laughs> before we came here, you said to me, you know, I can start revolutions. I'll give a little example. So I had to, um, it's interesting trying to sort of change the world. You always need a test. So my sort of test of doing this thing was uh, 2008 in Zimbabwe. And I was given a challenge, okay, with these various technologies, can you defeat a dictator in a corrupt election? This is 2008. Robert Mugabe lost the election by 50.4%. And this was me and my buddy, Arthur. Arthur is now the Deputy Prime Minister of Zimbabwe. I met him at Davos in 2008. It was my first time at Davos, uh, not for skiing, but for the World Economic Forum. And he said, okay, Mark, here's my problem. We're fighting an election in five weeks' time. We have no money, and we can't tell anybody what we are doing. Can you come up with a plan to defeat a dictator in a corrupt election? The planning took 45 minutes. Now, at that time, I didn't have an iPhone because they barely existed. We didn't have Wi-Fi connection. I didn't know anything about Zimbabwe. I was applying, if you like, my new lens to work out how to fix this guy's problem. So it was any case of how would the election be stolen? Sort of, in reality, one can talk about these things. Maybe diplomats can't. Um, and we worked out that pretty much the result was going to be cheated at the end. In terms of the system, though, we were looking for a moment of transparency. And in fact, there were 9,000 polling stations where the vote was conducted honestly at local level, and then the results were uh, massaged at the end. So the idea was to use technology. 1,000 people, so tapping into a network of 1,000 people that were all opposition supporters, with camera phones. And this is Zimbabwe in 2008. Now, remember, the criteria is you can't tell anybody you've got five weeks and you have no money. How the hell do you get 1,000 camera phones in Zimbabwe? That took half an hour. There were these a set of tactics, and these are almost like the sort of new diplomatic tactics. You tap into existing networks. The opposition already had 15,000 supporters, and you're very lazy. And you say, do you have a camera phone? Are you willing to help? Sure enough, within a half an hour, out of 15,000 people, 1,000 people say yes. 1,000 people, we don't tell them what the plan is. This would put them in huge personal risk. It would make them, uh, we would have the plan escape. So in fact, what happened then is we just said, are you willing to help await further instructions? At the last second then, as soon as the results come out, 1,000 people get a text message, this is Zimbabwe in 2008, to saying, please take a picture of your local result and send it up to a website in South Africa. 1,000 pictures go click. The local final results get crowdsourced in South Africa. 10 people turn the pictures into a big spreadsheet. And then the global press, very, very skeptical. I still remember reading the BBC report on this thing. Um, a group of anonymous freedom fighters had counted uh, 36% of the possible vote. The opposition was ahead by 66%, and Mugabe could no longer win the election. That was an example, and that took about 10 hours to plan, design, and execute, first time in the history of mankind. Okay. That kind of stuff. All right, great. <laughs> so what I wonder, Nicola and Alex, is whether that sort of crowdsourcing, that kind of quite dramatic example, is that something that diplomats could match? I, don't yeah, I mean, do we need to? Don't we just want to, don't we try and enable and create the conditions in which people can do it? Why should we do it? Um, uh, I wonder. I mean, maybe we should, but I think you, some of our work is about enabling those things to happen. But that's the example that I, that I mentioned with uh, Tahrir Square, I mean, it's not the diplomats that will go to Tahrir Square. It's the protesters because these people are, are, are citizens of the country and it's a very large stake. But you will have diplomats out there seeing what's going on and reporting back uh, what they're seeing. 
And that's, of course, where social media plays a big role, but also face-to-face communication, talking to people, seeing what's going on. Well, I, mean, I, I do see it. I mean, it puts diplomats in a very tricky role. I mean, there was the teddy bear incident in Belarus, where whatever Swedish nationals dropped teddy bears from an airplane... They don't work for them. I mean, it wasn't a Swedish military airplane or anything else. But right now, they get in, in sort of um, totally tied up to a country, and it creates diplomatic incidents out of something which was, to some extent, a YouTube stunt. Things begin to become very, very complicated, and uh, would make your life very difficult, I would imagine. Well, um, <laughs> <laughs> the Swedish ambassador was expelled from Belarus. Yeah. So again, it's interesting. So it comes back. In the end, if you're looking for symbols that you want to sort of play back to, they tend to be national ones as well as private ones. So we can't avoid this stuff, um, nor can you control it. Uh, so at least the very least you have to do is try and understand it uh, and be ready to be extremely agile. So I think this, the speed thing is obviously so interesting in terms of what, what happens in events. Uh, and you, it's very hard to make policy at tremendous speed. In fact, it's usually where some pretty stupid yeah. things happen. Um, so, uh, how, so it really puts even greater pressure, I think, on anticipation and thinking things through, different scenarios through. Because when the moment comes, I remember speaking to our folks in making policy on Libya last year, and they said the speed of things, it's very hard to actually be doing the policy making when you're moving at that speed. You need to have thought through quite a lot in advance. Let's open this up to the floor to hear what you have to say and what you want to ask. Yes, uh, my name is Nori Shikata from uh, uh, Japanese Embassy. And uh, up until last month, I, I was uh, Director of Global Communications at the Japanese uh, Prime Minister's Office and uh, uh, working on uh, communications issues, issues uh, especially after 3.11 of uh, Japan nuclear power plant accident. And uh, uh, I was facing the issues of uh, uh, the so-called you know, crisis uh, communications and uh, under those uh, circumstances, of course, uh, uh, from the government point of view, we, we wanted to send out you know, as much uh, information or objective information as possible when there are lots of rumors and uh, uh, there, there are like social media hypes you know, taking place. And what do you do under those kind of situations? There is no choice but for the government to engage social media. And uh, so my uh, argument is uh, under crisis communications, the government, uh, the modern government, needs to engage. And if uh, those issues related to international reputation, you know, Japan was facing the, the risk of national brand you know, being damaged. And uh, what do you do? You know, there, there is no choice but to engage. So... Uh, under those circumstances, my, my argument is uh, it is the use of social media is ex, you know, extremely uh, important, uh, but it's really hard for diplomats. It, it's, you, know, you are talking about 24 hours operations and how to do it. You know, as Alex mentioned, it's, we are facing you know, tyranny of, you know, how do you call it? You know, it's it just the, the modern day... Uh, the social media situations. And uh, so I, I just wanted to get the sense of, you know, whether you have some reactions, you know, to this specific, you know, case study. And uh, another point is uh, I was using Twitter, but uh, I was aware that I'm not reaching uh, 
the audience in my neighbor, that is China. And uh, so cyberspace or so social media space is divided, and how do you cope with those kind of situations? It's not, you know, I'm not only talking about China, but uh, uh, there, there are different social media environments in different countries, and uh, in the modern-day diplomacy, how you would cope with those kind of different varieties of environment. Thank okay, you. thank you. I'll take a few. Deborah Botchwood-Smith, I was just struck by your election story um, because in that case the technology was in the hands of the good guys. But, you know, what happens when the technology is in the hands of the bad guys? I'm Derek Watt. Uh, it, it seems to me there is a sort of... Um, there's an age thing here. If you're under 30, which most of us aren't in this room, you were brought up with all this information from Sega games, Nintendo to mobiles and so on. And if you're not, you weren't. And there isn't an ambassador who's 30 anywhere in the world. And there isn't um, any politicians. And so there's a cultural thing here. You're talking about trying to... The panel are talking about how to handle this thing. Actually, people under 30, it's, it's normal. So actually, why do you need an embassy then? When they're 35, what, why? Why? Why did we kick out British Council, the um, World Service, out of the embassies 25 years ago? Shouldn't actually the software be more important than the hardware? Okay, let's, let's um, get some responses from the, the panel. Some interesting points brought up here. Um, the use of social media in a crisis to protect that. I think it's very interesting you use the word brand. We're no longer talking about national reputation. We're talking about national brand in this new world. And this problem of the tyranny of speed, which has been raised already. And um, who Twitter's actually reaching? Who's, who's, who's actually reading Carl Bildt's William Hague's tweets? I had a look this afternoon, actually, at William Hague's. I mean, of course I subscribe to them. I'm a diplomatic correspondent. But, I mean, what do they tell me about what's really going on in British diplomacy? Um, and it raises the broader question of, of this, this, this issue of the echo chamber, that you're just tweeting to a group of people who's your group and not maybe the people who you need to reach. And then uh, the other questions. Technology in the hands of the bad guys and... Do you need an embassy if you've got this new tool? Like, which are they? Take any of them or all of them. Do you want to start? Yeah, I want to crack at that. Um, I mean, basically, it's, uh, I'd be very interested to hear the sort of networking perspective on it because it does seem to me that, uh, you know, for all authorities breaking down and uh, the world's more fluid these days, there are still, you know, some authoritative, authoritative sources of information and albeit William Hague's tweets may not be immensely revelatory, they are still telling you what the nation's foreign policy position is. Similarly to your tweets about what's happening in Fukushima are telling you something factual, official, and on the record, which is the position of the national government. So I think you know, there is still a mandate and a legitimacy and an authority which is there. I think the more interesting thing is how does it traffic through these crazily connected networks that we're now talking about and to some extent, maybe to Derek's point, the thing we need to worry less about is whether the message will, will spread. I mean, we're so connected now that it will find its own route. You know, I'm sure that what you were saying found its way around the world incredibly quickly, maybe not via Twitter, but it will have got there. Possibly, you know, we should worry less about the, the mechanism and more about the pace at which government can, can speak and give its formal position. And, and what goes wrong when government is rushed into doing that 
and pronounces too early or without the full fact. Yeah. The, um, so what, what can diplomats do with all this? Well, one thing they can do is try and establish frameworks and rules, um, uh, the conditions in which things operate. Maybe they can't do that, but they can try at least, I think. Uh, and that, you see the beginnings of attempts to try and do that. Because, you know, the fault lies not in the stars, but in ourselves. We, you know, it's, it's just technology. It's like money. You know, it can be good, it can be bad, depending on what we want to do with it as human beings. But you can try and create the conditions in which it can operate in a fair way and you have less, uh, less abuse. Uh, so I think that is something that uh, diplomats can do, or at least government officials can do sometimes. I think the um, I, I think so under thirty five point absolutely. And, uh, so I think it's the job I'll do next. Um, I'll go broad again. I'm thinking uh, I'll get the under thirty fives to do quite a lot of this stuff. Yeah, I mean, why is it me? Uh, why is and, you know why is it why why me? Because also there's a kind of thing about the brand. If you're the ambassador, people will go, oh god, how boring. Um, not, of course, in the case of... <laughs> uh, but whereas, whereas they might connect much more, much, much better with uh, somebody who well, they're going to recognise. necessarily. Surely, if you have an ambassador who goes out on a limb a bit, um, the American ambassador to Syria before yeah, he left, right. for example, yeah. then he was very red. Yeah, that's right. Although, of course, what was the most interesting thing he did was not... It was communications helped to explain the thing. It was actually the gesture of going to certain places. The physical act of appearance uh, was, in fact, the most important thing. The crucial thing was that people would know that he been there, but uh, and I, I wrote a blog in, in Lisbon, which basically my mother-in-law read. Um, uh, <laughs> apart from when I, the trouble is, if you write about sort of G20, then five people read it. But if you write about you know what I think about Portugal, then uh, f- you know five thousand do. Uh, so again, the sort of what you write about is is, is quite sensitive. I think the. Um, uh, do, but do you need embassies? I was scribbling down, and I was going to say my opening remarks. You need people who have judgment, who are able to digest, and who have judgment. You're never going to remove that. The, you know, sound and sound analysis and judgment uh, are, are essential. Uh, so you need somebody who can do that. Uh, it's public authorities. Then who knows my who that be? But somebody's going to have to do that. It's really tricky, isn't it? Because on the one hand, content is king. You know, people are only going to read the tweets or the blogs if it's interesting. Um, but on the other hand, as you were saying, there's this tyranny of speed, so you don't want to make policy too fast. But if it's bland, is that almost as bad as being untruthful? Because then it just gets passed over. Well, I think it's interesting when we had the, the riots in London last summer, we quickly noticed that if we made sure that we had updated information uh, all the time, it, it served not only the Swedish colony very well, but also the embassy, that we could actually we could function if we paid attention to getting information out uh, through social media or our website. Um, and, and we noticed also in Sweden that Swedish media would then refer to what we said. And they felt that it was much easier for them to just have a quick check, okay, this is what they're saying now. And they had started trusting us because they had noticed that as we updated things... Uh, sort of uh, very frequently, so, so uh, that, that made a, a big difference. On the point of um, technology getting into the, the wrong hands, I think that's where we get to, back to the fundamental issue of freedom on the internet. There's so much going on there that's not acceptable with countries behaving uh, in a not acceptable way where we have to keep coming back to that issue and, and have it at the top of our agenda. And then about embassies becoming, uh, well, do we, do we need them? Who knows what happens in the, in the future? But, uh, but I think that what, what I've noticed in London is that when you, when you 
present yourself as an ambassador, people think that you're mainly preoccupied with foreign policy issues. You quickly discover, Alex did it definitely in, in Lisbon, that, that the field is so broad that you, you're working on. And then we have to adapt a policy after a while that if you want to do creative things, it's better to, uh, to not ask for permission, but rather forgiveness. Uh, then you can get away with quite a lot of things. And I'll give you a, a perfect example, because last autumn we... Um, thought that it, it's a beautiful building we're in and uh, it's got lovely furniture and all that but maybe we needed to display a bit more sweet of Swedish design so then we took the radical step of actually removing all the furniture and store it in a safe place we left of course all the antique mirrors and paintings and had Swedish design brought in and then we transformed the whole residence into a modern art museum for two weeks and we had thousands of people that came and visited our residence and then we had some prominent visits, and of course no one in Stockholm dared to criticise us for having taken this rather bold step. But it turned out to be a very useful way of reaching out, and we kept that up, having an open house uh, last weekend uh, with you know, five, more than 500 people in two hours turning up to, to have a look at the, at the residence. And these are people that are really interested in the architecture and that have felt that, wow, now is an opportunity to have a look at the building. So that's a different field. It's not traditional foreign policy, but it's about reaching out to the less traditional groups. Thank you very much. Do you think embassies are necessary? Yeah, well, actually, yes. And partially it goes, it's physical connection between people is really important. And this is a place for people to congregate. And this is, I think, something that um, there's a belief that things like Facebook and Twitter are uh, desegregating us and it means that we're less connected. What's interesting, though, is that it's very rare that somebody updates their Facebook status to say, sitting at home looking at Facebook uh, statuses. What's more normal is that the people that are posting uh, sort of stories of things they're doing, they're going out, they're doing interesting stuff. And in fact, we're actually becoming more physically social as a result, not less. I would like to pick up on some of the other things. So um, some bad news for you is that crises will happen much more often. Much more often. That is guaranteed that it is inevitable. I would actually recommend that one takes away the word tyranny before speed because that creates a negative value prime on the word. It's just speed. This thing gets, go back to the negatives, it'll get worse. It'll happen more often. I mean, who on earth would think that there'd be Japanese plants closing down in China? You're probably quite lucky that you switched jobs in the last month. (laughs) You thought you were busy beforehand. (laughs) Another thought then occurs to me, so then if you look at part of the reason why this thing spread is that there's a concept called social mass mass social. The way that things begin to spread is that a small number of people start tweeting, so it sort of exists within a small social space, but then mainstream media picks it up. As soon as it goes to mainstream media, it massively scales, but now because most people look at media in a social context, it goes back to social again. This is part of the reason why everything is spreading much, much faster. There is a technology piece of me. So when you were describing your problem, I'm immediately thinking of uh, building an API, an application programming interface, to Weibo. There is technology that allows you to translate things instantly into multiple languages. That already exists. It's easy and it's free. There are whatever the Chinese Twitter. It makes perfectly logical sense that you have a little program that you make your tweet and it automatically appears and it doesn't matter if it's 10 languages or three or whatever, 300 different languages. Then Click. you end up with the grapes of wrath in Japanese being the angry raisins, though, don't you? Um, well, they're better than that now. Yeah, but they're awesome. <laughs> well, um, so, yeah, I mean, fortunately, technology does actually get better. So there's, I mean, when I was doing my, uh, my Libyan stuff last year, I, mean, I don't speak Arabic. I've 
no clue on this stuff, but being able to switch, I, I switched to Google, Google Chrome and you could automatically translate it. And you got enough to be able to do more. So yes, you wouldn't want to be doing uh, Arabic poetry with it, which is still very beautiful, but you wouldn't want to do that. Um, but some other things uh, that, that I was also thinking of is that if you look at technology for bad people, so when I do my stuff, I am a strategist and I probably have spent about 40% of my time studying how bad people work. Bad people have always been using this stuff. Hitler used this stuff for the equivalent early on. The Iranians used crowdsourcing. They used crowdsourced pictures. In the 2009 Iranian revolution, they would take pictures of the protesters, and then they crowdsourced, turning the pictures to work out who these people's names are. The bad people are already using these technologies. It's a game. It's almost like a, an arms race. Pretty much, the good people are trying to do good stuff, the bad people do bad stuff. As soon as anybody works out how to fix something, the rules change, you come on. And I think that's another part of the problem, is that as soon as there's a rule that works, it almost immediately stops working, which makes things interesting for people like me, but annoying for everybody else. Thank you very much. More comments and contributions from the floor. Uh, we're just a few yards away from the, uh, the biggest social media enterprise in the UK, um, which is the home of BBC World Service, which I'm the director, I'm Peter Horrocks. Um, and BBC News will be moving there in, 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 a, in a few months' time. Um, we're in the, you know, when you talked about easier or difficult, I think to get to the easier stage, you have to go through a very difficult stage, and we're absolutely in that at the moment, and that's hard enough for an organisation which is about being absolutely public-facing public, public facing and transparent. So much harder for diplomats to do it. The, the, the heart of a successful, successful social media strategy uh, is speed and trustworthiness. How can policy-driven, centralised organisations like dip diplomats and, and, and foreign offices become the kinds of organisations that you need to be to bo be both speedy and trusted. Great. Well, let's go to a former diplomat at the back. Ian Gleeson. Um, I'd, I'd be very interested in the panel's views on uh, whether um, the digital world is a, a help or a hindrance in conflict resolution and some examples that kind of popped into my head. I'm, I'm old enough to remember the, uh, the Chiapas revolution in Mexico, which I think was the first time that the leader of a rebel group, um, Subcomandante sub Marcos, was actually connected to the internet and was obviously able to get his message um, across to the world without an intrepid kind of war reporter having to uh, get through the jungle to interview him. Um, and I suppose now we take it for granted that uh, groups like the, uh, the, the Syrian armed opposition are, you know, are, are also connected to the world's media. So I guess that's an opportunity for conflict resolution. At the same time, groups like the Taliban are able to use the Internet to monitor Western media, but also to kind of exploit Western media, I think, very often against Western interests, while they're not themselves really subject to a lot of the, the pressures we've already heard about this evening from fast-moving um, social media or uh, mainstream media. Um, um, I am actually quite relieved um, that William Hague's tweets are often very boring because I can think of nothing more risky than at the end of a sort of you know, four-hour Security Council discussion or you know, very sensitive diplomatic discussions, that these discussions are then boiled down into 140 characters. I mean, the, the, you know, the scope for kind of dangerous misrepresentation would be, uh, um, would be enormous. And then if I can end on a sort of a final opportunity for digital diplomacy, uh, the Swedish ambassador mentioned Second Life, and there have been some people who suggested that you could actually take some of the more intractable um, conflicts 
into Second Life, where the avatars of leaders could leave behind a lot of their sort of baggage from the real world and really get down to some, you know, to, to kind of wargaming war some sort of, you know, solutions to these conflicts. Thank you. Um, Arion Krasnizhi from the Embassy of Kosovo and also one of the followers of uh, Swedish Foreign Minister and Hague's tweets as well. Um, uh, before I came here, I looked at the Foreign Office uh, strategy for digital diplomacy, and it says like this. What is digital, digital diplomacy? Digital, digital diplomacy is uh, doing foreign policy using the Internet. Why do we do it? Because we have to. Now, it's uh, quite clear that it's uh, the necessity rather than the willingness to use it that um, sort of like, um, obviously, the, we talked about the advantages of uh, embracing and engaging into the social media and the, trying to reach to the masses. But hasn't this caused sort of like in a way the, the debate that the technology and um, information has caused the demise of the um, traditional diplomatic um, uh, diplomat, same um, as it is talked about the demise of the foreign correspondence per se. For example, we are more relying on just gathering information rather than uh, trying to analyze it and make sound judge judgments in order to be more proactive rather than just reactive to the um, events that happen. Anyone like to pick up any of this? And Peter Horrocks' point that if speed and trustworthiness is what's really important, how do diplomats deal with this? And Ian's point, you know, you can't come out of a Security Council meeting with speed and frankness and tell everyone what's happened in 140 characters or even in a very long blog. Um, so how do you use this tool if this is the problem? Um, second life as a place for conflicts. And... Uh, the demise of the diplomat and the foreign correspondent, which is one I suppose I should take to heart. <laughs> Though we come back to the face-to-face -face argument. You've got to be there, and it is trust. You've got to be there as a witness to say what's happening and also to report what there is around the corner, not only what's on the screen. Um, and I would argue definitely that trust, just as brand of a country is more vulnerable, brand of a person too, you have to look after a lot more these days. For that reason, so maybe there are fewer of them, but um, hopefully they are still gone to in a in a in a in an environment where you have lots of information that is replicated there. Then you want the people who can give you a bit more, bit more, so that they're analysing using their background and their judgment. That's my defence of a foreign correspondent. What about the defence of a diplomat? Okay. The uh, well, I think that. I attended something like this about 18 months ago where I said that, uh, well, I, I don't think in Portugal I was there to gather mu that much information. It was pretty readily available. People who wanted it could get it. I was there to interpret, digest, and advise. Yeah? Um, so I didn't ever see my job as really being information gathering. And then somebody in the audience just snorted and said, you realize most people have no idea what goes on in almost every country in the world. We have no idea what's going on in, I don't know, Indonesia, for example. No idea at all. So you do need some information gathering, specifically because people are not reporting about it. So I, perhaps there is a role for information gathering, but I didn't see that as my kind of principal task, actually, um, uh, 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 as a diplomat. I think we need to separate a bit policy and communications, yeah? Uh, so uh, speed of communication is part of the deal. You have to do it. You have to be, you know, move at the speed at which it's happening. I guess you risk. There's a, always, you must face it, a hundred times more maintaining the trust while keeping the speed um, and the ability to, because uh, occasionally risks to your trust away than that. And it's interesting. Uh, I saw Susan Rice the other day speculating uh, about who had killed Chris Stevens. And I was thinking actually I probably wouldn't do that as a diplomat. 
Um, uh, you know, I'm not sure that's my job to speculate about what might have happened. Um, I think it's to find out what did happen. Um, and, then, uh, and not comment before then. But it's you know, a delicate one because I think you can get drawn into doing something which... And I think you have to be clear, what's your job as a diplomat? You know, what is your role? Because uh, you know, you're not necessarily a correspondent. You shouldn't be. You're doing some other things. Um, uh, yeah, Second Life and the conflict resolution stuff. I'm, uh, I'm a bit sceptical about that. <laughs> I think it's con- conflicts get solved in, in first life. Um, really. The, uh, interestingly, one of the, uh, just picking up a point people were making earlier, one of the interesting trends of the last 20 years is the decline of conflict, um, certainly of conflict deaths and overall probably of conflict. But what is happening is just shifts into this area, into cyberspace, and into space probably as well. You, just, it's, it's, you get more confrontation, less conflict, and this is a great area to do confrontation rather than conflict. Uh, and I think that will continue over the next 10 years, which will pl- play back to some of the issues you were describing around uh, uh, people doing bad things with this stuff. The, I mean, one of the interesting things about, uh, when, about conflict resolution is that quite often, if you look at most systems are, uh, let's say, sparked off in a particular direction by a very tiny number of people. So if you look at, let's say, Egypt and Tahrir Square, there was practically, I mean, probably a thousand people wanted to have change originally. But things can scale. A thousand people need to find 10,000, 10,000 people find 50,000. And my, as a contagion expert, my reading of Egypt has always been that turning off the mobile phone system pissed off 55 million people. That's the reason why he left. It wasn't Twitter, Facebook, and anything else. And it's called, um, how do you destabilize an entire system? What's interesting, though, with conflict resolution is that quite often it is whatever uh, key stakeholders talking to key stakeholders from very, very entrenched positions. What's missing, though, is that very often those key stakeholders are a tiny number of people. And what the goal is, how do you influence the masses? These tools, and I mean, looking at Syria right now is a very interesting one, is that there is a huge amount of information available to every single person in Syria. The messages can now be propagated. So now even if you have the official propaganda on Sana state television, you can get access to other interpretations of the news instantly at massive scale. So I think it opens up new opportunities for conflict resolution because it allows you to talk to more people rather than being forced down a single conduit message. Now, at the same time, it makes conflicts more likely because people that would like to cause mess and mischief can reach out to large numbers of people at the same time. And part of our fundamental problem is that human beings will follow anything. We will follow absolutely anything, and our history has shown us that. But I think it does open up an, an interesting new avenue to explore to see how it can be used. Probably won't be Second Life, but because nobody uses Second Life anymore. <laughs> I, I was just thinking, um, Nicola, on this question of the relevancy of, of diplomats. You talked about that in your opening remarks. It's got to stay relevant and competitive. On the one hand, you know, you've signalled a bit that the way to do it through the digital world is to target an audience like the Swedish diaspora here, or maybe the news agent organisations in Sweden. And maybe you can't reach a global audience easily. Maybe that depends on, on, on which country you represent. But is it also then that diplomats need to look t- to change a bit what they do in order to, f- to do more of what social media isn't so good at? I mean, if you look at the Arab Spring, a lot of people have talked about how good these networks have been at deposing tyrants and dismantling societies, but maybe they're not quite so good at doing the the slow business, the non-speedy business of building new institutions, which is what, for example, European countries are trying to get involved in. I don't know. What do you think? Do you think it shifts 
diplomatic activity, as well as making you think harder about the audiences you want to reach? Well, I think that uh, if you want to have uh, an impact, you you need to sort of realise that you are in a very competitive market and also then think about, for example, the think tanks in London. Many of them are absolutely outstanding. What we realised quickly uh, was that we should tell Stockholm more about what the think tanks in London are doing. And it was quite interesting because when we produced every week a summary of some of the most interesting reports that have come out of of think tanks around Britain, it was an instant hit. Mm -hmm. I don't think we ever sent a report that was such an instant hit as that. uh, With the government offices. Because there were so many people that, that felt that they didn't have time to check websites in the UK. And it was not only foreign policy, it was about social issues, it could be about... Uh, education, so many different areas, but where people were saying, you know, that's brilliant, that turned out to have a very interesting report that was worth reading. Put a lot of pressure on other embassies uh, around the world, but... um, But but Just an interesting point about that is, um, you know, how would you feel about sharing that with a wider public? Because I think one of the things that's, that's very interesting, you know, to Alex's point, a lot of people don't know as much as we think about other countries... Uh, there's, you know, there's also, a, I think, a desire and, and a habit with social media around curation. Uh, curation is desperately needed so you don't drown in the sea of content. I would be fascinated to see what you had curated yeah. as the total output of UK think tankery, but, but you probably wouldn't have the instinct to share that publicly. And I wonder if you would slightly worry about what people might interpret by what you've chosen to highlight and what you've chosen to leave out because I think it would also show something about your thinking patterns which diplomats aren't always comfortable with with showing it also brings us back to the Olympic Games syndrome doesn't it when it all comes down to it we back the national team we have a view of the world which is defined in some emotional way by the country you come from and the Swedish take on what a British think tank is saying about something or other you could be quite sensitive to reveal it to the world. Well, I think that uh, the, the culture that, that Swedes are raised in is that basically the, the freedom of information is out there. So we sort of conclude that basically everything we, we write in that sense, it's possible if someone wants to, uh, to have a look, then no problem. And, and it's going to be in Swedish. That's the only problem for you. But then we've got, we've got the translation technology yeah, these days, haven't we? You know, you could, you could yeah. put it through his translation machine yes. and you'd have some Absolutely. grapes of broth in there. But No, but I, I wouldn't worry too much. And I think when you start worrying uh, about... I mean, if it, when we're producing this, I, I, I wouldn't sort of think twice. If someone that, that I think, me, is yeah. a dividend that is yeah. worth thinking about. The, you know, the intellectual uh, craft of diplomats is pretty impressive when you get to see it close up. And I think the, you know, the curation that is done and the way that information is pulled together could find other audiences who would be fascinated yeah. by it. I, I, sometimes, I, I sometimes wonder whether we should... Uh, this is all on the record, but I sometimes think, why don't we uh, uh, just... Uh, why don't we just publish our reporting? Mm. Um, uh, because it's... Just about to, I was just about to... Yeah. Mention. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, but take it. But why do we do it to ourselves? There are various hands going up, and um, there's some been waiting a long time. Can we bring the microphone round? Benedict Pavia, UK correspondent, France 24, ex BBC. What lessons should be learned across the board yeah. about WikiLeaks for diplomacy? And 
Mark, what's your next project? Um, are you backing another good guy somewhere on the planet? And if so, even if you can't tell us a lot about it, could you give us one or two clues? Yeah. Because, boy, that Zimbabwe um, campaign was extraordinary. Okay, pass the microphone back. We'll come to um, My name's Julie Nutter. I'm from the U.S. Embassy, and we use, uh, we use social media quite a bit. Um, to the WikiLeaks point, I think one of the lessons that we've learned is, um, of course, a lot of our reporting was out into the public sphere. And to me, it actually pointed out the importance of diplomats because it showed to many people that we actually knew, what, first of all, what we were talking about. We had developed deep relationships with our interlocutors and, you know, it was something to point to to say you can't do everything by a tweet. Although we do use social media quite a bit, it pointed out to us that you can't get that kind of rich communication through a tweet that you can with a personal relationship with your interlocutor. But the other point I wanted to make is, um, going back to the, the think tank point, it's sometimes very difficult to think what is my value added as a diplomat in a place like London where there's so many people having a conversation on a very high level. I think we as diplomats, depending on the country we're in, have to get used to not always being the center of everything, but to work at the margin in a very, very significant way so that your marginal activity is going to have a huge impact in how things turn out. I mean, for example, in, in the discipline of economics, marginal actions have a huge impact on what actually is the outcome. And I think we have to think of it like that, that perhaps in some societies we're working at the margins, but you're doing something at the margin that has a huge impact on the outcome. My question was about, uh, I was going to ask the panel what um, they thought about uh, this diplomatic digital elephant in the room at the time, which was Julian Assange in the Ecuadorian embassy in London over WikiLeaks. Okay, can you tell us who you are? Sorry, Tana Wallen from Clarity Writing Experts. Okay, so um, WikiLeaks. So I'm, not a, I'm not a diplomat. I actually thought that the, the reading was fascinating. I mean, it pretty much exposed something that I thought was this big, dark secret. I mean, it was pretty much the uh, Ferrero Rocher, uh, Monsieur always serves the best Ferrero Rocher chocolates. That was my vision of diplomacy. I was extremely impressed when I was actually sort of reading through these things because it's interesting, it's useful, it's plentiful, um, it seemed to have focus. I mean, this was, it actually made me much more impressed at what diplomats actually did as an outsider to see what went on in that world. So instead of it being bad, it was actually quite good, really good. I think the reporting that he did around this thing was appalling and very, really quite dangerous, but it gave some very, very interesting insights. Um, in terms of what I'm doing next, so the, um, I did decide that I would out myself. So it's been quite interesting doing things sort of just in my own capacity. I still tell quite a lot of people, but I've been outing myself a lot more recently, partially because I just want to go around helping people that would like to do good. I don't work for bad people. Uh, now, to some extent, by doing uh, Gaddafi and Assad and some other people, I've made, I mean, I'm basically copping out and taking some easy decisions because they were pretty nasty, not so nice people. Um, things become a lot more gray and white, and then it's a lot harder. Like, there's very often no right and no wrong. But so dictators already can make um, a lot more of an impact. I am very interested in North Korea right now. 
Something very strange will happen in North Korea. Something very odd. That's usually true. Give us a few more hints. Well, uh, the, um, you have a, a god king has, was created. He didn't exist in North Korea a year and a half ago. He didn't exist. So right now you have granddad was a god, daddy was a god. This new kid gets created. He's 28 years old. He's a third son. There's a daughter that's sort of gone missing. His brother's a 41-year-old playboy uh, with whatever, a mistress, a couple of... And it's like a really weird, dysfunctional family. And now he's a 28-year-old that has inherited a country of 23 million starving people. He's sitting right next to China. Um, I didn't do anything in Burma. And that was because I worked out that there was no need. And this was, I was working with digital democracy people. And that was because Burma had pressure from China that they didn't want China to take over their natural resources. They also worked out that as a leadership team, they could make a lot more money by being open. And now we're beginning. So now it's really interesting to see North Korea is now going through this, trying to work out, can we make a lot more money by being open? The other thing with North Korea that's really wacky is that North Koreans want reunification with the South. Obviously on their terms, but they would lo- really like, I mean, that's the sort of, if you like, the sort of the national dogma that still exists. So yeah, I think something very weird will be working out there, and I'm, but as to exactly what will happen, I'm sure I'll have to give... But, 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 but let's just think about this for a minute. What's the social media penetration or the mobile phone penetration of North Korea? Uh, so the mobile phone network of North Korea is one of the fastest growing mobile phone networks of the world. Uh, Korea... From one to two. Uh, to, to the nearest 50,000, take a guess. Actually, you should be reading your country reports on this, although you'd have to read the, you'd have to read the Swedish embassy because they still have an embassy there. Um, they have over 1 million mobile phone users there, and that was in December of last year. It'll be right now at about 1.4 million mobile phone users, 3G mobile phones provided by China. Or, um, um, or, or Roscond from Egypt invested $400 million to put in this network. Right now, it's as cheap as Chinese mobile phones. You can also drop mobile phone signal from China Mobile in. So you can get information in and out. There's some interesting stuff. There's opportunities. Obviously, I can't say more in a public. Anybody would like to have a conversation? I'd have a chat. Uh, two hands up at the back. My name's Richard Green. I'm a parliamentary researcher. I'm curious about what you think the impact of this is or isn't on distributions of wealth and resources rather than just relations between states. Because it does strike me as interesting that... There is, to a certain extent, this virtual imaginary world with these ideas of digital equality and democracy and the impact that that's actually had on the distribution of wealth and who owns what and who doesn't own what has been practically zero. And although like, the, we've got an ideal of digital equality, the actual distribution of resources in the world has probably been more unequal now or as unequal as it was 100 years ago. Um, and I, I was wondering what you think about the worry that... Um, a discussion based on communication and networks will always appeal to people with power, people at the centre right now, and that that shrinks the amount of space available to analyse deeper and more you know, important economic relationships. I mean, the amount of time the Arab Spring was referred to as the Twitter revolution versus the amount of time that was talked about the demographic and economic pressures going on in those countries, that's, that's a little bit scary, I would say. Okay. Uh, hello, my name's Jack. I'm also a parliamentary assistant, same as Rich. Um, well, but I'm kind of wondering what you think about how, if this is such a good source of information that we can learn so much from social media, why do things like the riots and the Arab Spring take people by surprise? Um, if we have so much information, it's telling us so much, why isn't it until these things are actually happened that it seems that it's more of a 
reactive process than a proactive process. And also, um, I, what from the events that I've been to where I've met Egyptian activists, they actually talk about, they actually resent it being called a Twitter revolution because these are people that spent years and years and years building personal underground networks and planning a revolution. It didn't happen because of Twitter. And if you look at the, the parties that end up filling the vacuum um, in Egypt, they were not the people that were on Twitter. They were people that were organised beforehand, that were more organised than a lot of the more um, revolutionary democratic group. Okay, a corrective there, Mark. It's not all about social media. I must admit, one of our, my Arab colleagues who works uh, with Peter told me a story I've never forgotten about, the um, Arab Revolution and a young man he met on Tahir Square who was unemployed and was sitting at home watching it all on a sofa with his mother, like he always did watch television. And it was when he watched television and he saw what was happening in Tahir Square that he got up, put his jacket on, went down to the square and became an activist. It was absolutely nothing about social media. So... Well, and it's, so the, um, there's a group called Canvas, so the Centre for Applied Nonviolent Actions and Strategies out of Serbia. They were the ones that helped get rid of Milosevic in 99. And they created a training camp for activists. They trained the Tunisians, the Syrians, the Egyptians, the Belarusians, da 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 Now, what's interesting then, the reason why I mention this, is I'm, I help advise them, I sort of consult. And what's very interesting is that um, if you look at a spark, so let's say the spark in Syria were the kids doing graffiti. The spark in Libya was the human rights law getting arrested. Sparks happen all the time. All the time. And the sparks are completely random. They are, and, and you could predict that the spark would take place, but there are so many sparks that could lead to a UK riot that it's impossible to respond to every single spark. Canvas taught the activists, don't wait for sparks, don't try to create sparks. There's what's called pick-up wave one. Pickup wave one in contagion form says that as soon as like, a spark does take place, sometimes there's a naturally emerging phenomenon of people doing it. So in Libya, it was 40 people protesting outside of a police station. Same thing in Syria for the, uh, for the, for the young kids. Activists are taught, do not make pickup wave one. It's a waste of time because there are too many sparks. What happens is that activists are like, if you're looking for these things, and it's almost like your diplomatic lens, is to try to find out when do we have pickup one taking place. Because this indicates that a pickup wave two or contagion event could start taking place. What activists start doing is when they see pickup wave one, they can scale it. Scale it means you create an emergent. It, it's fairly easy to go from 50 people to 500 people. That's easy. But so pretty much, if you like, there's almost like a tool set around contagion that has been learned. And that almost says ignore the sparks because everything could be a spark. It is a very wacky world, this sort of strange and wonderful world, and it will continue, and it will get more, and it will get greater, and it is inevitable. But I think, I think to the, the first point that was made, I mean, the, the fundamental point about demographics, inequality, worklessness, uh, and the need for something to be done about skills and opportunity obviously create the circumstances under which the thing is sparking all the time. And, you know, a country such as ours has a responsibility and, indeed, has a pretty good record on uh, making appropriate interventions there, international development, skills, education opportunities, etc. So, again, you know, the real world crashes into the cyber world uh, because the fundamentals are there on the street and on the ground, and we have a responsibility to do something about those as well as scanning the radar. 
I mean, I was thinking about, there was, I read, read a lot of stuff on Malcolm Gladwell, you know, the rev, well, the revolution will not be tweeted and then the replies, and it's quite interesting that exactly going into all this stuff. And I was thinking that there's a metaphor of the spark. I suppose I think of social media as like the wind, really. It's not the spark, it's not even the fuel, but it's the, it can blow the flames extremely fast and amplify the fire. But without the fuel, you know, there is no fire, and uh, that comes from elsewhere. And I wondered about the relationship between this and WikiLeaks, um, and whether... That sense of humiliation, which you get when, you know, you're in Tunisia, and you just read, my God, the Americans think the same thing as well. I mean, you know, they, they can't believe what's going on in this country either. I think it just accentuates the sense of, uh, of humiliation, which is, I think, quite a powerful uh, spark for, uh, uh, for change. Um, so uh, the openness, but in terms of distribution of wealth and resources, I suppose, of itself, maybe not, it depends, well... Although if you can bank via a mobile phone, that strikes me as a more efficient way of doing it than most other ways of doing it in some parts of the world. It can actually help uh, people to get hold of money, uh, indeed to be lent money. But uh, if it does push, if it weakens central authorities in a constructive way, that may in the end have some impact, but it's very long term. It's very difficult to put the causality with it, I think. But it, I, I, if what behind lies behind your question is, you know, the kind of group of people talking to themselves about what they like, there is a bit of that, I think, in all this. Uh, and there's always the risk of fashion, as there isn't any kind of fashion. I'm, I'm Ellie Lee. I'm a journalist and editorial intelligence alumni. Um, I wanted to ask about whether, well, how much you thought about the future of social media, because Twitter, YouTube, Facebook, they're all essentially profit-making structures. And Zuckerberg and Jack Dorsey are thinking, how can we make money? What's next for us? Which is not really working towards interests of you know freedom of speech is working towards interests of profit five years time ten years time who knows what's going to be there where's going to, what's going to happen to our data that's current on twitter facebook especially you know important data that possibly is going to be stored in the cloud somewhere but belonging to jack dorsey that's my question how much do you think about that well, okay well, let's just take the question at the back yeah um, my name is william french i'm from the swiss embassy um i'd like to ask a question really particularly regard of the discussion of social media and new technologies in moments of crisis, social change, uh, revolution or revolt, to what extent there's a bit of plus a change in that the dynamics of rebellion and communicating that rebellion are pretty similar throughout the ages. If you think of the 1916 rising in Dublin, that made use of handbills and clandestine publications to propagate the message and the response of the authorities and I imagine foreign diplomats and correspondents would have been not dissimilar to how people react to the events in the Arab world today. So, Okay, we're going to have to wrap in just a minute, so let's leave it there. Very brief comments, yeah. On that point, I think the, uh, the fascinating question for me is, to Derek Wyatt's point earlier, what happens when people who have got their entire life on a Facebook and Twitter timeline find themselves in positions of responsibility representing their country? And your entire back catalogue of everything you've seen, stood in front of, tripped over and danced around is, is on the... It, you know, it's sat in the cloud, actually, so you don't own it. Apple owns it or, uh, or Facebook owns it. And I, I can't imagine, uh, I think the good news when I look at my own daughter if she does these things is that I'm sure she'll work it out and I'm sure you will all work it out because the world will be fundamentally different. But it does seem to me to be monumentally disruptive 
to uh, authority figures and individuals who represent authority. And maybe just a final word from our host, which brings, um, which relates to your question too, which is about the future of social media and its role in diplomacy. Do you think embassies are going to have to be spending more and more money on this? I mean, there are different views out there about it being extremely costly if you have to do it 24-7, or actually a very cheap way to increase impact. Or, or is this a blip? Is this something which is going to rise and fall and return to more traditional ways of doing diplomacy? Well, I think um, you will always find those that will say, goodbye, social media, hello, mass media. That's where we're heading. Um, I think as an embassy, it's never going to be that we can have an operation that's 24-7, that we have that kind of, of money to, to operate. It just wouldn't, and I don't think it would make sense. And I think also that Stockholm would sort of wonder what have they sort of, what has happened to London? Um, I think that, that our comparative advantage when we use social media is focusing on facts. People are not going to think that it's interesting to, if, if I started blogging about walks through Regent's Park, looking at the beautiful roses. Um, Not really what people would expect that they should read. But they would perhaps find it interesting to know that when the budget was presented last week, what were sort of the main uh, sort of uh, ingredients or the government policy that was presented to Parliament as a Parliament opened recently. These things, just to highlight that this is going on back home, but also then write about what's what's going here so that you, you get a good mix and then write in a language that people understand. So um, I think that helps. Just one thing about the young generation, because we, we talked earlier on about the children that are so much born with the digital uh, skills, uh, so they, don't sort of, they haven't sort of lived through what, what, I've, what I've seen. Uh, but, but one thing that that we need to remember is that technology is not everything. We need to have a generation that still finds it interesting to go out traveling around the world because I'd, I'd hate to see a young generation that's so awkward by thinking that technology can solve everything and there's a there's sort of a second life uh, version of it. I, that's not going to work, but to uh, get the backpacks and uh, travel around the world. Thank you very much. Let me thank, on behalf of Editorial Intelligence, all of you for coming, all our panelists and particularly the Swedish Embassy.